Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hey, this is Peter, and I'm here with... Mike! That was weird. <laughs> is that how I start? I don't even remember anymore. I'm so used to talking on the stream channel, like, I got a totally different thing going on there. No, it worked, it worked. Usually you say my name and then I say hi, but you, you can leave the blank and I'll fill it in for you. See, we're doing stuff new. Watch out. It's it's like a, a new relationship. We're role-playing we're at this point. We're doing it live. Whoa, whoa. Let's not, let's not <laughs> go too far there, though. Yes, so welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast, everybody. Today we're talking about a recent Kickstarter delivery, Dice Throne Adventures. Woohoo! And yeah, we played this on the stream channel a couple weeks back. I enjoyed it there. Let's see if it held up over several plays. Yeah, absolutely. And I, this is one that I played the Kickstarter preview of and did a video for. And I had some issues with it. And I'm happy to say that they fixed all of them, basically. But did I find some new issues? <laughs> we'll see. And that'll go into our design discussion, which we started two weeks ago with Jason and I on the... Adventure Tactics podcast. And so we're going to continue that discussion today and kind of turn it into a design discussion on development itself. But first, we'd like to thank some of our amazing Patreon supporters who help us get this show running, uh, keep the whole channel going, uh, defray the costs of buying games and paying podcast fees and all of that. Y'all are amazing. Specifically this week, we want to thank Level Urfi, who is a co-op lover, Chris Powers, a co-op MVP, and Drew Gergich, a co-op champion. So Level, Chris, Drew, thank you all so much. Thanks to all our supporters, everyone who's on our Discord, everyone who subscribes to the YouTube channel, uh, listens to the podcast. We're doing this for you all, so thank you so much for being here with us. All right, so Mike, have you been playing anything lately? I know COVID's kind of put a damper on plays, but I know you love solo gaming, so have you gotten anything in solo or otherwise? Yeah, uh, I mean... It's interesting. January has been, and this is often the case, January has been a very heavy month for uh, Kickstarter previews and other like upcoming games. So really the majority of my videos this uh, month have been games that are coming to Kickstarter. Like I did two different videos for Core Worlds, both a new solo mode for the deck builder that you and I both really love, and this totally separate new worker placement game in the same theme. All right, so hold on. So so you've talked about a bunch of stuff, but I, I now that you mentioned it, I only care about one thing. Tell me about the Core World solo mode. How is that playing? Oh, it's, it's great. I mean, the video's already up, dude. You, you could have already watched it. <laughs> I put it up, uh, I think, like this past Tuesday. Between designing, podcasting, and streaming, you think I have time to watch your videos? Come on, nah, Mike, tell nah. me about it. Tell me about it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so it's, a, it's a really streamlined solo mode. I really only had one suggestion for the designer that he uh, liked. But basically, uh, after so if you don't know Core Worlds, it's a deck builder competitive. Normally, this is the first time it'll be solo. And it's a very nice deck builder. It's been around for like 10 years, but I think Peter and I both hold it in very high regard in terms of deck builders overall. Oh, yeah. It's definitely one of my favorites still to this day. Yeah. And one of the cool things that I don't think anybody else has done is that uh, the offer is both planets you can conquer and uh, cards you can add to like your deck. But then uh, you play cards from your hand. Most of them are units that you play into a war zone, kind of a holding zone. And that is a separate action. You actually attack the planets, which then give you more energy to play more cards. So it's this really kind of cool way they do like combat and resource management. But the solo mode plays incredibly straightforward and streamlined. It's very smooth. You just flip a card up after each of your turns. And the AI will either draft a card, 
target a card for conquering, like a planet that they can conquer, or conquer that planet. And the targeting kind of gives you a one-two step process. So you can try to jump in there, steal the planet from them. They have a really simple way for doing their victory points, but it's also a good challenge. Like literally, I had one little suggestion that uh, cards that give you a special ability but cost an action to use should not trigger an extra enemy turn or like it makes those cards worthless basically because you just give them too much to do. But besides that, I thought it was amazing. Like, and, and in fact, the nice thing is I see no reason why you couldn't play it in a multiplayer game just to have more competition. Like it's, it's the kind of AI you could just throw into a two or three player game to kind of uh, amp things up. And also I talked to the designer about this. There's a possibility he might even work it into a co-op variant where you might have like two AIs fighting against you. And that again, it worked. I mean, it works so easily. And, and I could see like the players talking about which things they want to buy and which planets they want to conquer. Like, even though it's a competitive game, there's a lot of ways players could kind of plan together to uh, take on the AI. So I'm very hopeful with that one. Now, is there a beat your own score mode or is the AI scoring or how does that work? Yeah, so the AI is taking the cards they get and the planets they conquer. And they also have like this little very simple way that they get the core worlds, which for those who haven't played are like the big victory point cards at the end of the game. And yeah, no, they, they, they score points literally the exact same way the player does. Like that's the nice thing about how smoothly it works. They took away all the complicated stuff. There's no hand of cards for the AI. There's no energy management for the AI. But they end up with all the exact same things you end up with and you just compare your score. Like It's literally like playing against an opponent, but without any of the upkeep. Now, is there a way to scale difficulty? Because that's one thing I've noticed lately. As I'm getting more into solo games, I've noticed not a lot of them, not not any of the ones I've played lately, not, not a lot of them, but have ways of changing difficulty. And that bothers me because once you beat it, what are you supposed to do? I was going to say, almost everyone I play has ways of changing difficulty. But uh, yes, uh, it literally the AI's card deck, each card is marked with whether it's a like easy, medium, or hard card. And you just take some cards out and put some cards in, and bam, you got a harder difficulty. That's awesome. Yeah, and the only other one I wanted to mention, just because I think it's kind of funny, <laughs> and I'll be real quick with this because I talked more about Core Worlds than I thought I would. In the space of a single week, I have filmed uh, videos for the Snallygaster situation, which is an upcoming game from Renegade, and uh, Hunted Woad Ridge, which is the third game in the Hunted series. The first two games were on Kickstarter uh, last year and are delivering in the next couple of weeks. These are both, this is the funny part, these are both kids on bikes like Stranger Things inspired games at the same time. And I've never played a single game that was inspired by Kids on Bike and Stranger Things. And now I played two games in the space of a week. The nice thing is they aren't really directly opposing each other. One of them is only co-op with one player kind of being a Mysterium-esque like hidden information giver. So you have to have at least two players and probably even better with three or more. And Hunted Woad Ridge is a solo game, definitely is the focus, but it does play two-player co-op really well with a little variant. But yeah, so, so they aren't like directly competing with each other, but I'm just like, what the heck? What are the chances that <laughs> in, the, in the span of like so little time, two games with such similar themes would be coming out? Well, Spy Club has a little bit of that kids on bikes theme. Yeah, okay, you're right. So I guess I have played one, but these are like really heavy in the Stranger Things, like with right. psychic powers and switching between worlds and fighting giant monsters and creatures. Like it's straight up Stephen King, it's Stranger Things, like that kind of influence. Well, yeah, I mean, it just got redone and Stranger Things is out. So, yeah, no, that makes sense. Like two or three years later that games would be coming out about that kind of stuff again. Anyway, I'm talking a lot. What have you been playing, Peter? 
All right, so I've played two games, one of which I've already put on the stream, and these are actually both competitive games. Don, Jerry, and I have gotten together and played a couple games online, and he wanted to introduce me to some games I didn't get to play last year, and I really enjoyed both of them. So these are competitive games, but I'm going to talk about the solo mode here because obviously that's where our focus is. So the first one's called Praga Kaput Regni. Nice job. Say that three times fast. I dare you to say it one time fast. Uh, I did a stream of this, actually. So if you want to see the solo mode, I put it on stream. And very similar to what you were talking about, the solo mode does a good job. Well, there are two ways of doing it, right? The one way is you just take the most recent action and get rid of it. So that's like the easy way out of the box. But on the publisher's website, they printed out these like five cards where... It does a little bit more than that. It might take the first, second, or third action. So there's a little bit of a differentiation there, but they do lean more heavily, obviously, toward taking the the first action available because the actions become more expensive as you go down the line. But then it also does things like adding stuff to the board and it kind of races you for some of the goals as well. So this AI is a little bit more in depth, but not much more. I mean, if you look at the video, literally it's two to three steps for the AI and it's real quick and it just gets back to your turn. This game is very much a Euro point salad game. There's like five different options of things to go for. Lots of end game scoring. Everything you do is getting you points. But the theme is basically you're trying to rebuild Prague or build up Prague. Actually, it's not even like one of these things where it was destroyed in a fire or anything. It's just, you know, you, you're trying to make Prague like a, a, this big built up city that the rest of the world will, will hold in high regards. So I don't know. It was really fun. I mean, you know me. I like that kind of game. I like these micro action games. So basically, you're taking a tile. There's two actions on it. You do one of the two. But then, of course, as the game goes along, that one action gets more and more in depth because you can do more and more things. And there's just more stuff on the board. So different things will trigger. So, um, yeah, I, I like that one quite a bit. But the other one, which I haven't done a video on, although I'm planning on doing it in the next couple of days, is Dwellings of Eldervale. And I am super excited by this one because, I mean, you'll probably just, if you heard anything about the theme, I mean, it's like you've got wizards, you've got warriors, you've got dragons on your side. And everybody's got these units and they're going around kind of in an area control way, but not really. Basically, you take a worker, whatever your workers are, and again, a dragon could be one of those workers. You place it somewhere on the board. You're going to do the action on that space. But if there are other people there or if there are monsters adjacent, they'll move in and then you have a fight afterward. But you always get to do your action. And that's the part I really like about it. So nobody can really stop you from doing what you want to do, but they can certainly discourage you by a will of force, I guess. You still there? Yep. I mean, I might have fallen asleep from all the Euro talk, but you know. <laughs> no, I, I know Colin enjoyed uh, Dwellings of Eldervale, and it's been a popular one. Uh, when I did the Man vs. Meeple top solo game video recently, both uh, Mark Dainty from Not Board Gaming and Jeremy had that, I think, at their number one and number two spot. Yeah, it's got some intricacies to the AI, the way it works. It's, again, a deck of cards. It just took me a second to kind of figure it out. But I'm definitely looking forward to doing a video. So that should be up on the stream channel. I don't know, maybe a couple days before or a couple days after this goes live. So look for that one. Dwellings of Eldervale. I mean, come on, it's got a dragon in it. You know, I'm going to cover it. Cool, man. Well, looking forward to that on the One Stop Co-op Shop streamed channel. Make sure if you're just subscribed to one channel, subscribe to both. Get double the co-op goodness and solo goodness. Yeah, we kept them separate because I think they're different enough to keep them separate. And 
because we wanted you to know what kind of a video it was when we put it up. Because, uh, you know, the stream channel is going to be a little bit more co-op-y, meaning we're probably going to have more people, not as many solo games. Although, ironically, I just talked about two solo games I'm putting up, where the main channel typically focuses a little bit more on solo, or even if it's co-op, it's kind of multi-handed solo game. Cool, and talking about a game that is not a multi-handed solo game, Dice Stone Adventures. <laughs> you sure about that? Well, I, I guess we'll find out. Let's uh, get into it. Uh, you want to talk about the theme a little bit here, Peter? Sure. You are an adventurer and you go and you kill different things like barbarians that have fallen or, I don't know, monks that have fallen, other things that have fallen, and you are trying to beat them up. You have to go through, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Yeah, there, there, there is a pretty good theme here, although I guess I've read like some of like the little comics books they did, so I know it better. They're taking great warriors from like across time and like different like realms and kind of bringing them together in like this sort of Coliseum esque fighting thing where they're all trying to uh, win their way up the ranks to face the mad like this mad king who's kind of in charge of everything. But it's like this end never ending battle. So it's a little bit, uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Contest of Champions. Well, yeah, that or uh, I was thinking of what's that old game? You know, the one Tom Vassell loved. We used to play it. Oh, Duel of Ages? Yeah, Duel of Ages, exactly. I was oh, thinking Duel no, of Ages. that doesn't remind me of anything of Duel of Ages. Well, that, that's what the theme of Duel of Ages was, too. It's, I guess not. Duel of Ages was in the future, and they were like recreating these uh, competitors from across time, but similar idea. So if that's the theme, then what is... So every other stage is a, between a boss fight and like the getting to the boss fight. So if it's supposed to be like this ladder-climbing arena battle thing... What is the stages that you're not fighting the boss? So I think that's regular Dice Throne, where it's just 1v1. And I think Dice Throne Adventures is supposed to be like, what if you try to break the cycle and get to the Mad King and end him and like stop this for good? Oh, so you're fighting your way through like labyrinths of stuff and he has these right. like hero protectors protecting right, him. Right, yeah. And he has like his minions that are like there to stop you. I mean, by the way, none of this is in the game. <laughs> right. I was about to say, I don't know if that's actually the theme, but yeah, we did a good job of making something up. That's for sure. But do you want to cover gameplay? Just cursory? Well, sure. So it's a, it's a Yahtzee-esque game in that the key idea of combat is you get three rolls of five dice. You uh, Each player's got their unique player board where they uh, are trying to get like different combinations that will deal damage to their enemies or give them healing or give them special token powers. But on top of that, each player has a uh, deck of cards that's unique to their character. And you'll be uh, using those cards to mitigate your dice and upgrade your powers, like what you get for your dice combinations, that kind of thing. And it uh, splits between a crawl mode where you're, uh, com and this is all cooperative, by the way. Dice Throne Adventures is like the cooperative expansion for the competitive skirmish, you know, dice combat game, Dice Throne. You're all uh, in the crawl mode trying to work through this map, pick up these little keys by moving from tile to tile and having fights that use the same core mechanics. And then you get to a boss battle stage where you fight a boss. And I think we'll get into like how the enemies work, I'm assuming, with our points and stuff. But that's like kind of the general gist. You uh, do a mix of playing cards and rolling dice, try to get combos, defeat your enemies. If it's your first time joining us, the way we review things is we look at the top five things we think you need to know about the game, starting with number five, which is the least important, going all the way to number one, which is our most important thing we think you need to know about the game. I will start because you just said the word. My number five is Yahtzee. <laughs> That's right. If you played Dice Throne before, or even if you haven't, just know it is Yahtzee. You're going for straights. You're going for full houses. You're going for other stuff. Now, there are... Every warrior has their own 
custom dice and they have different symbols, but it's just a variation of trying to get different sets of things to do certain types of attacks. And every hero's got their own special stuff. Again, I'll get into that part later, but you are really rolling dice, picking which ones to keep, rolling again and doing it again. And yes, there's defensive rolls and there's special cards you play on top of it. But if you don't like dice rolling, you're probably not going to like it. But if you're like me and I loved Yahtzee growing up and I, I still play it all the time. But yeah, I mean, it'll remind you a lot of Yahtzee. And if you want to play cooperative Yahtzee, I don't know what other way to do it. So I, I enjoyed that aspect, but I think it'll be a turn off to some. Yeah, and that's interesting. That's definitely way higher on my list. <laughs> my number five is a, a pro and it's the enemies and the bosses. And this I, I did left out of the rules explanation because I knew I was going to talk about it in a second. So the way the enemies kind of handle the fact that they you know, don't have a player controlling them and making these kind of Yahtzee decisions. And if you don't know Yahtzee, you know, it's like you roll five dice and you're trying to get, oh, like five of a kind or a straight, uh, like one, two, three, four, five, or these different things. So what they do for the enemies, and it works like so smoothly, it's very quick and simple, is they'll be like, this enemy wants three this and two that. And you just roll the dice and any dice that fit that you keep and any dice that don't, you re-roll. And it happens very quickly, but it still makes all like, like, you need to have them rolling to make a lot of the card effects work, like changing their die rolls and that kind of thing. So I'm glad that they made such a streamlined way to get through the enemy's turn. On top of that, I think the variety of enemies is good. Like you see lots of different uh, values and effects. Like some of them poison you, some of them attack before you. Their defenses are drastically different. Some of them uh, block your damage. Some of them just hit you back when you hit them. So like that's a lot of fun and kind of keeps things fresh. And then the bosses, which again is like an entire separate stage. You go through the dungeon crawl, then the boss. The bosses work great. They have their own deck of cards, but it's again like super smooth. You flip over the card. They uh, tell you what they're trying to roll for that turn. They'll have some special ability that kind of mimics what uh, a player might do with their deck, but has very simple like targeting rules. So I think uh, all the ways they handled the enemies and like kind of the AI side of things is excellent. Yeah, it's interesting. So I I feel like you reviewed this as a whole system, Dice Throne and Dice Throne Adventures, like what you need to know, I guess, about the whole system. Whereas I went in assuming people knew Dice Throne, which is a bad assumption. And my list is more what makes Dice Throne Adventures different. So I feel like we're going to have a lot of the same things on our list, but the priorities are going to be a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right. So my number four is a variety of heroes. Again, this is probably should be much higher and more important. But if you played Dice Throne, you know how different every hero is to play. And yes, while you're doing the same basic thing, rolling five dice and, and trying to make certain things, the percentages of certain symbols on the dice are different. Every hero has their own different symbols on the dice. The sets they're going for are different. They have different tokens, which do effects, and they do a really good job of differentiating heroes in very simple ways, just by slight changes. And the funny thing is, you don't have to know all that to play it. Really, you just need to know what you need to get. And you can look and you can see it and you roll for that. And so I think it does a really good job. The other thing I like, and I don't really have this anywhere else, so I'm going to put it here, is they give you not only a sheet that shows you all the different combinations of stuff you're doing and how much damage it does, and you can upgrade those, and every hero's got their own deck too. Forgot to mention that. So yeah, you have your own deck of cards. So not only are you rolling dice, but you got cards that'll modify things. You can upgrade your skills as you're going along. But one of the cool things I think they also do is they have a sheet, like kind of a quick reference sheet on the side, where if your hero has certain abilities, like if I am the monk, 
I'm going to do things like I have chi. And it tells me what chi does right on this sheet where I put the chi tokens on the side and it tells me the max I can have, uh, things like that. So all the rules are right there. It's funny because for a while I was looking them up in the rule book, but I found out, I was like, oh yeah, they're right here on my quick reference sheet right next to my board. So it really makes it very easy. So not only have they created a lot of variety, but they've also made it easy so you don't have to refer back to the rule book very often. Yeah, and this did not make it into one of my points, although I think it's really worth calling out that uh, the production here is beautiful and like the storage solution they have and how everything is organized and like the player aids and stuff. I personally found it to be a lovely, lovely like package overall. And the price wasn't, I, I, I paid for most of the Dice Throne stuff myself. They did send us a review copy of just Dice Throne Adventures itself, like that one box. But I think everything is really nice here. Uh, but going off what you said, Peter, uh, my number four is the card play specifically, which is a pro for me. And some of the things you already said, I think uh, the cards, like the different decks, give some nice uh, differentiation between the characters, which is certainly there. I like the resource management because any card in your hand can be discarded to give you points to play other cards. And, you know, I like that in Marvel Champions. I like that in lots of games. I just think that's a fun mechanic. Actually, why don't you talk about that altogether? Because I don't think we explained how you get combat points and cards into your hand. Why don't you explain that that whole thing there? Well, I mean, it's very simple. You have an upkeep phase each round where you get to draw one card and gain one combat point. But then, like I said, you can discard more cards to get more combat points. And every card will say, like, this costs two combat points to play or this costs zero combat points to play. That's basically it. But yeah, so I, I like the cards. I like those choices. I like that they give some dice mitigation because, as Peter said, it's a pretty random game. And uh, how you also upgrade your board with them. Like, I think all the stuff you do with your deck is fun and makes the game a little meatier than a Yahtzee-like base game might at first seem. Yeah, no, totally agree. My number three is the bosses and stages and the variety there. So as you have variety in your heroes, I think every time you play a different hero, it'll play very differently. I also think the what they did with the stages and bosses is actually pretty good. Now, it's a little bit of a mix because, you know, we'll get to this in later points for me. I think it's pretty good, but I think it does get repetitive at some point. But I think the variety is pretty good in what they do. So when you go on a tile, it'll tell you whether it's a level one, two or three enemy that you're fighting. And as Mike said, it's very simple. They tell you what they're trying to roll. They tell you their special abilities, all that stuff. You get to do your attack. Then they get to do their attack back. And then the next person takes their turn. And then when it comes back to your turn, if they're still alive, you have to fight that enemy again. You do their your attack. Then they do their attack. But the different enemies feel differently. And this is one place, I guess, where I did have to refer to the quick reference, which is on the back of the Dice Throne Adventures rulebook, because they will sometimes put condition tokens on you, and that will have different effects sometimes. But I think that's a good thing in the fact that it's not something like Too Many Bones, which I know you love, but drove me a little crazy because it was like 50 different things on each enemy. Really, for especially for the basic enemies, they only have like one or two different things that they're going to do. So you're not constantly looking up rules, things like that. So for me, they did a good job in varying the enemies you're fighting against, the bosses you're fighting against, without overcomplicating it. Yeah, and I mean, that's all going to come up a bit in other stuff I have to say, but my number three is kind of the other half of the character thing that you already discussed. There's a mix for me, and that's the upgrading of characters. And something I like is the dual upgrading you have in Dice Throne Adventures, because as we already mentioned, you play cards from your deck onto your board 
which will change what your like board results can do and even what dice you're looking for. Like sometimes they'll actually open up new combinations of dice results to execute different actions. I think that's really cool. And then on top of that, in the campaign structure of Dice Throne Adventures, where you have, again, this crawl mode, then boss, then crawl mode, then boss, like four times kind of that sort of iteration of thing, you also get these uh, better cards added to your deck and they'll sometimes replace cards. They'll sometimes add entirely new cards, which are really the most exciting ones, these equipment cards that give you like entirely new abilities and things. So you're like getting kind of a fun progression of your character in each game, but then you're also getting this uh, wider scope progression over the course of the campaign. I think that's really cool. Now, the characters, I'm going to be a little less positive than you, and this is coming from someone who plays a lot of Dice Throne, like my son really likes that game. I think the characters, they went for streamlining, which means if you're somebody like me, this is very much a taste-based thing, but if you're someone like me who likes Sentinels of the Multiverse and like how every character is a very unique thing and has like their own mechanics and stuff, or you know, Too Many Bones is another good example. I think the characters in here are much less diverse than the things in there, mainly because it's just a, such a streamlined system and like there's not that much they can do. And you know, like this character might have this token, that character has that token, but they're basically the same token except like one number is slightly different. Not a big knock, but just something to be aware of if, again, you're like me and you like like these hugely diverse characters. They're not that much there. Now, here's the bigger thing. And Peter, I don't know if this came up at all with you playing it, but I don't think they have the balance right for the characters. And the big thing is in the crawl mode. In the boss mode, it's fine because all these characters are balanced. Well, I would say to survive a 50 life versus 50 life 1v1 battle. That's what their balance was made for. And they didn't change those balances for Dice Throne Adventures. But when you change that, especially at high player counts, and suddenly I only have 10 life because you kind of like have a divided up life pool between your players, you can have these uh, glass cannon characters that have very little defense, have no healing ability, who can die in just a couple of fights. And there's no real mechanic to mitigate that. And it can be very frustrating so there are some characters that are just straight up harder to play and will lead to more grinding and repeating of stages as you wait to get enough uh, salves, the healing items. And on the other side of things, there are some characters like the Paladin that has really consistent defense and really good healing that I found was almost unbeatable in the crawl mode. So that's just a little something to be aware of that the character differentiation is pretty good, but because they kind of took the characters and just dropped them straight into this entirely different mode, the balance is not all there for all the characters. Some are going to be much harder to play, which, hey, I mean, that could be a pro for you if you want to challenge yourself more. But for me, it's a little unfortunate that some of the characters are just not as playable in my mind in Dice Throne Adventures. Well, it depends on your player count too, right? Because at low player count, I think when you have the higher health pool yourself, then it's fine. I think when you have a lower health pool, you know, in the three and four player game, it's more of a problem. And I didn't get into player count, but I do think that it could be problematic to have these. I don't know that it's quite balanced across player count. Let me put it that way. Well, not only that, but I, I, you know, I didn't, because of the pandemic, I didn't get the chance to play it like four player, but I can just imagine the downtime not being ideal. <laughs> just to yes. put it like Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna cover that more in final thoughts, but I, I agree with everything you're saying. I did not experience the differences between the heroes as much because I didn't get to play that many different heroes. Again, pandemic and everything else involved. But I could see where you're coming from. If you don't have healing, it would be much harder to get through and you have a limited amount of healing salves. Now I would say I could imagine those characters doing a lot more damage so they're not going to get attacked as much but maybe I'm wrong there. They certainly put out the damage more, but the thing is, uh, again, in a big fight, that balances out, right? 
Like, you know, you might be doing a bunch of damage to me, but I build up like this huge 20 damage attack. But when you keep on fighting like these monsters that only have seven or eight or nine damage, that huge damage output doesn't necessarily pay any dividends unless you can consistently one shot. Like I was playing the uh, the Pyromancer, I think they're called, was is one of the ones I've noticed this the most with. Like if she was one shotting, she was great, but her defense like, literally just hits them back. <laughs> like she didn't have any way to stop their damage. So when I played three player and I had like 10 life or whatever, I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you have 12 life. Now you do decide where you put those healing salves. And again, we'll get into, I mean, I guess I don't have it as one of my points, so we can talk about it here. You get to decide where you put those healing salves. And different people can go pick them up because you see where they are on the board if you need to get more. So you can specifically design it so that character is always the one picking them up. But it is kind of weird that you don't have any co-oppiness there where you could trade the salves between you. And if somebody goes down, it's really punishing because you have to spend, normally you get like half your life back. But if you if, if one of the characters goes down, you have to heal them and they only get one hit point. So that salve goes from giving you, you know, oh no, it's not half your life. It's like, three to six hit points back to giving you literally one hit point back. So, uh, and I mean, if you've sitting there on one hit point, you're not going to survive the next battle either if you have no healing. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. Like, if you want to play with these heavily imbalanced characters on the same team, I think you need to just house rule it that you can trade salves or salves and and use them on each other. Because right now you can't, except when somebody's knocked out and it doesn't work great. But anyway, we're, we're, we're going too much on this. Uh, Peter, what's your number two? My number two is, it has to do with components. I put I said easy to put away. But it's also easy to take out. It's easy to do everything with. And you're right. It's because of these trays. They do such a good job. Now, I don't think it's the same with Dice Throne Season 1, like the original, but the like remastered one that they've done. And with Dice Throne Adventures, it is so easy to pull it out because they have these custom trays and just get to playing. And unlike other games, you don't have to track a whole bunch of stuff. You really no- need to know how many healing salves you have and what level you're on. And that's it. I mean, literally, you pull your character out of the box. Now, if you want to put back all the card upgrades that you got, you can, but you don't need to. As long as you don't use that character again in a different campaign, you can have multiple campaigns running easily. Now, yes, some of those items won't be in the box anymore, but who cares? Like, there's so many different upgrades you can get. It You're not going to miss the, the five or six upgrades that your one character is going to have. So, I mean, it's super easy to just put everything in the box, put it away, move it somewhere else. When you're ready to pull it out again, you can. And there's not a whole lot of ramp up either, right? It, it's it's not like some games where like Gloomhaven, when I put it away, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to remember everything that happened in the past as far as story goes. I have to remember everything in the past as far as like what items were and where they are. And like, it comes to the point where I get so stressed out, I don't even want to pull the game out. This is not that at all. Like, there's no backstory, really, to remember from what you did last time. I mean, it's literally just you're running and fighting the entire time. And each game is very independent from the last one. Really, the only thing you're carrying over is your upgraded cards and the healing salves. But beside that, there's, I mean, there's nothing you're carrying over. So I think it's a game you could play once or twice, put it away for a couple months, and pull it back out, and it wouldn't be a problem. And as you said with the components, the components are great and make it easy to do this with. Yeah, and I think uh, that goes right into my number two, which is uh, focusing on the campaign structure. But I'll start with my big negative and then get into my positives. And I'm assuming, well, maybe this won't be on your list. I don't know if you found this as much as I did. But I felt like this got so repetitive (laughs) and so samey at times. And it's one of those ones where, like you just said, not only do I think you could put it away and come back in a month or two, but I think you should play this in spurts (laughs) and then come back. Not not like a month, but like this is the kind of thing where I think if you had like a weekly game group, 
I think it should be awesome to play through the campaign. You know, and I, I think the two sessions go together really well. Like the crawl and the boss, those are very different in their play. Uh, they feel different. They're a lot of fun. But yeah, like for the review, I was trying to slam through the entire campaign and I did. And man, I was like, as much as Peter, you talked about the maps like feeling kind of different. I didn't feel that. I felt like the enemies were different. But over the course of, you know, eight plays, I was like, yep, I'm doing this again. And even though I said the characters aren't super different, but they do have nice differences and their decks are different and all that kind of stuff. And you grow them. But eight games with the exact same character is not my ideal. Like this is the kind of like when I play regular dice, throw, I like to switch around which character I'm using to get some new, like fresh feeling to it. Like the eighth game playing with the paladin. I'm like, yep, I'm doing this combo again. Yep. I upgraded that card again. And I don't know. It, it just, uh, it lost some of its luster. I don't disagree with any of that, by the way. When I said there was variety in the stages and bosses, I really meant the different enemies felt different. You're right. The layout of the maps and stuff was even very similar from one to the other. So I don't think there's a lot of variety there. And I guess you're right. After like the second or third time through seeing the same enemies, they do get samey. But I felt each one felt a little different from each other to some degree. Well, and the worst thing is, <laughs> and I hate this in general. This is a, a very personal thing. I hate having to repeat the whole stage again. It's like, well, you didn't beat it. Do 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 something again. You know, it's not going to have the same <laughs> enemies, but like, there's nothing really new there. You know, it's like, oh, okay, right. I'm just doing this again. All right, that's fine. But as you pointed out, there's not really anything new when you go through a different stage either, except that everything's a little bit harder. Well, it just means I don't get to the cool stuff at the end of the campaign. You know, it's like I have to take longer to get there. Yes. Now, now that being said, uh, the game originally, when I played the prototype, had uh, you did a like the stage and the boss all in one. And it took too long and it was even more frustrating to lose. So I do think the overall structure of the campaign, like stage and boss, I think that works great. I think it plays very smoothly. It does have like kind of this pick up and play uh, mechanic to it. And without getting into any spoilers, the stuff that happens when you win the campaign is like really cool. And I I think it uh, definitely adds some neat things. That's as much as I'll say. So yes, I think it can be very repetitive. That's probably my biggest negative about the game. But there's also a really like nice kind of flow to how they structured it. All right. So speaking of the like, quote unquote, legacy elements or whatever else, because they have these like four packs of cards, A, B, C, and D. And I was super excited to open them as I went throughout the campaign. And I thought I'd make it a little bit different as I went along. And like, I was going to level up as I go through. But nope. And this isn't a spoiler because it's actually right in the rule book because I finally looked it up and found it. I'm like, when do I get these new packs? Turns out you have to beat the campaign and then you open up these legacy packs to like influence your next, like if you want to play it again, which is fine. But when you see those legacy packs, especially when there are four of them, you don't assume you're opening all four at the same time after you beat the game. But nope, that's kind of what it is. (laughs) Well, it's not all four. You do have to do some things to get to some of them. But I mean, Peter, come on. They were (laughs) a big influence for this was clearly Diablo. And and you and I both know what it's like to play through Diablo 2 and then go into like nightmare mode or whatever. Nightmare mode. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I I don't hold it against them. I don't hold it against them. I just wish they wouldn't have called it like upgrade packs or there wouldn't have been four. I wish it was all one. I, I don't know how they could have done it differently. But I wish I knew that was like the reward for beating it from the beginning. And again, it's right there in the rule book. It was just something I didn't see because again, this isn't the kind of game where you have to read rule book front to back, like cover to cover, like 57 times. It's pretty straightforward, like when you get there. And it was like tucked in the corner at the end of the rule book. Like, <laughs> oh, by the way, once you beat it, you get to open this stuff. So I'm like looking through future bosses. I'm like, did I miss where I get to unlock this stuff? Nope. It's at the end of the campaign. <laughs> 
So that was a little disheartening for me, but I get it. I get what they were doing and I don't mind it. I just had excitement about opening those and I didn't get to. Um, So that wasn't one of my points at all. My number one point is this game is quick and simple. And what I mean by that is literally on your turn, you move to a new tile. If there's no enemy on your space, if there's an enemy already on your space, you just keep fighting that same enemy. You do one turn. So if you played Dice Throne before, again, one round of Yahtzee, you're rolling three times. You do one turn, then they attack you. And actually one of your neighbors controls that. So it does somewhat for low player count. I think it does a good job involving the other people at the table for higher player count. Again, if you got four people, there's only two people participating in each turn, but the turns are pretty quick and they're pretty simple. Uh, So it's a pretty easy game to play. What I found I liked this for was playing it solo or again, even with my kids where we would play a couple rounds of it and then put it down and go do something else and then come back to it. I feel like it had that, hey, let's just do one more turn tonight before bed or let's do one more turn at this point. I mean, it's not that long. Don't get me wrong. It's like not like it's five hours to play, but I did like the ability to walk away from the game, come back, play a turn or two. Oh, five minutes till the water boils. Let me go ahead and take a turn or two of Dice Throne Adventures, right? So, so that did appeal to me. But again, I think at higher player counts, if you're waiting for three other people to do that, and then your turn's only like a few seconds, and then you got to wait again for your turn to come back, I think that's where it becomes more problematic. So there are pros and cons to it. And certainly, as you mentioned before, the turns can be repetitive because you're literally doing the same thing over and over. Like every attack you do is the same. Every defense is the same. Yeah, you're going to have to do different things against different enemies. But what you're doing is not really different from turn to turn. So when I said the heroes are different, I think they are different enough from each other. I think you've even pointed out some places they are different. But what you're doing is not different if you're playing the same hero for eight games in a row, as you said. So quick and simple, I think, is a pro and a con. Yeah, and my number one is your number five. But I think you said it right. Like, I'm kind of talking about the system as a whole and, like, should you invest in this or not? It is a it is a die-rolling Yahtzee game. And that means that <laughs> it's, it's super quick. It's very easy to play. It's very easy to learn. My uh, eight-year-old was playing it when he was six and loving it. But uh, sometimes it's super swingy and sometimes it's super random. And the dice mitigation is in your deck, but it's minimal enough that sometimes... Uh, things just go really poorly. And like I said, like especially with uh, certain characters, you can't defend very well, like you're just dead very quickly. <laughs> or you, you know, the boss just happens to roll uh, five wilds and they do a ton of damage and take an entire extra turn because that's what their power does, you know? So it can be very exciting with that. And I personally like it, but it's certainly something that, like Peter said at the beginning, you need to be warned of before you come into it if you're not into heavy dice, heavy luck, it is a game with some skill and a lot of dice. <laughs> yes, yes, well, well put. And with with my final thoughts, I I feel like I, I I feel the same way as you do. I really enjoy the game. I have a lot of fun with it. I do get bored with it after a while, and that's why I'm happy that I can put it away. And maybe that's why that point was so high on my list. Like I like the fact that I can just put it away. Don't have to think about it for a couple of days. And they could go, you know what? I had fun with that. Let me bring it back out and and start playing it again. And you could do that so easily. Um, I like the fact that I can take a couple turns. Now I do have the benefit of a table that has it sitting there. Would I want to play it on a game night for a whole game night? I don't know. I think it actually might be better in solo. I certainly think the lower the player count, the better it's going to play. But if you like Dice Throne a lot and you want to play Dice Throne when there aren't people around, I can't imagine they could do this any better. You know what I mean? Like for somebody who likes the gameplay here and likes what they're doing, 
I think it's a great way to be able to play this Yahtzee style game on your own. Yeah. And I mean, I'm with you, like with all the things we're bringing up, I still think this is basically the best dice throne adventures they could have made. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. With the system they have. Yes. Like literally if they had just said you can share salves or salves to help kind of mitigate some of the imbalances in players and just like how things can go with those. If they made that one rules change, I would say like this is basically exactly like totally successful in what they were going for. Or if you just had a shared health pool like you do with the boss. I don't know why it's different. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great, you know, actually, that, that's a really easy uh, house rule to put in because <laughs> I don't know why it's different either. It's just an extra rule that they don't really need. So, yeah, so that, that being said, this is a really fun one. I do think people like I, I've been more off on dungeon crawlers recently because I find a lot of them repetitive. So I think if you're a huge dungeon crawler fan, I think you will feel the repetition less because you're already like kind of in for the fun of these kind of games and like the slow burn of the campaign. And the other thing is, you know, I used to play this with my son as a competitive game all the time. And now in the exact same amount of time, we can play a single stage of Dice Throne Adventures, but it'll slowly build to something cooler and we get to work on it together. So if you like already like Dice Throne Adventures or like those competitive games, this is a great, this does a great job of adding some fun stuff on top of it. So it's not going to be a perfect game for everybody. It's very random, but it's fun randomness and I certainly have a blast with it. So I expect this to stay in my collection, especially since my son enjoys it, but it's not one that everyone's going to enjoy. I think it could be hit or miss for a lot of gamers. Yeah. Well said. I totally agree. And I have a lot of fun with this as well. And I don't really know why. And it's okay. Sometimes you don't have to know why. Sometimes you just need to know that you're having fun doing it. And I like the fact that, you know, I keep coming back to this. I like the fact that I can put it down. And I'm okay with that. You know, if it's something where it was really engrossing or whatever else, I mean, there are pros and cons to that, right? Because if you get pulled away from something like that for whatever reason, it's really hard to come back to. It's really hard to get yourself back in that state of mind where with Dice Throne Adventures, you really don't have to worry about that. It really is a good pick up and play game when you have time to throw it in. I really like it for that. All right. And now uh, we're going to talk about or continue a conversation that I was not a part of. (laughs) So uh, Jason and you talked about development of games two weeks ago. What were some of the main points you all brought up, Peter? What do you remember? I mean, the big thing is we're really defining development and talking about where it can go right and wrong. And the reason we did that is Adventure Tactics has a lot, a lot of great things going for it. And to be honest, it really ended up being much more of a discussion about adventure tactics and what they did wrong and where their misses were. But the big thing, and and I think Jason made a good point. He said when uh, what Jason's looking for is friction points in the game, things that take you out of the theme, things that take you out of gameplay. And I think, you know, we described it here really well with Dice Throne Adventures. Like maybe they had some of those points early on in the gameplay. You said you had some problems with the game and then they fixed them. That's what development is, right? It's fixing those problems, those things that take you out of the theme, that take you out of gameplay, that make you look to the rule book or look to somewhere else, taking them out of the game so the game plays smoothly. And I think it's it's important. Yeah, and I think different games need a much greater or lesser amount of development. Like one I can think of, I'm just uh, the way you said friction points really hit me. Too Many Bones, one of my top games these days, was not one of my top games when I first played it, partially because of all these uh, friction points, because they have like a billion encounter cards and many of them didn't get the development time and like the eyes on them I think they could have. Because even now when I play Too Many Bones and I'm like an expert on the system, I still have to go on uh, 
at least once or twice per play and like Google a specific encounter card. And there's almost always a thread about it. So it's easy to find help and be like, what the heck do they mean by this phrase? Or what do they mean when they said this? I don't understand this mechanic, you know? And yeah, I, I think some games like have so many like little pieces and pieces that won't be seen in an average playtest session, right? Like if I'm doing too many bones development and we're playtesting it, I'm only seeing a tiny fraction of those encounter cards each time we play. So each card is getting fewer eyes on it in the like full scope of the playtesting and development cycle. Whereas, I don't know, something like Splendor, every single card almost, except for like those high scoring cards is being seen, like the core mechanics are being used over and over again. You're going to get those friction points very quickly and you can do a lot more work to make sure they're smoothed out. So, I mean, is that the key though? Is the key as a designer really the only way to smooth those out is playtest, playtest, playtest? Well, no, I'm thinking of, so Sentinels of the Multiverse, which is a pretty notorious game for having a lot of upkeep and challenging like stat modifiers to keep track of. They are doing a re-release, which I think is not a great business decision, guys. <laughs> I mean, good luck with it, but I think it's hard to fracture your audience base and try to get people excited about a game that's been out for forever. But that's beside the point. Sentinels in the Multiverse, they're doing this new thing where in like the re-release, they have given more clear names to things and they have like clear headings. So it's like, uh, instead of the card just having like this big block of text, now at the bottom it says start of turn in big bold letters in a bigger font. And then it says what you do. And that I think is kind of a mix of UX and development because in the development, when you find those friction points, I think designers should be, and publishers really, because this is part of the graphic design and stuff too, they should be looking for ways to streamline and make things efficient and like combine things together so that they are as smooth as possible. Because that way, if you know that this one mechanic works, it should work for the 20 cards that use some variation of that mechanic or use that type of phase. I think when you have a ton of effects and you try to get too unique with each of them and don't take the time to like find that common thread and make it a consistent thing, then you can't get the playtesting eyes on it because you're playtesting a hundred different elements. Whereas really maybe it should only be five different elements with variations that you got to try out. So how do you find that? How do you spot that in your own games? Because you know as well as I do, part of the problem I think with development sometimes is you get so close to a game, right? You know the rules inside and out. So I mean, that statement you put in there is very clear to you, but how do we know that it's going to be clear to people playing your game? Certainly playtesting is one thing you can do, but even during playtesting, how do you spot those points of friction or those points where it's like, wait a minute, what does that mean? Um, It's interesting you say that because we just had this with a game that I can't talk about, but uh, one of our games, uh, I was writing the rule book for it. And I think whenever you're writing your own rule book, this is for the designers out there, and you have to explain a lot of little things to get a big part across because so many different cards have so many different things going on with them. That is a, I think, a clear sign that you have to find some commonalities. Like, find a way to be like, okay, there are three types of cards. They are this and that and the other. And they're this color. And that's how we're going to do it. And I'm going to make every power work within one of those three overarching categories. You know, and I had 50 powers before, but 15 of them are too goofball-y. I got to cut them. These 35 powers fit within these three categories. Bam. Now my game will be way easier. My rule book actually flows well. I don't have to explain 30 keywords. I got to explain 10 keywords. You know, and that's another thing. Like, uh, just kind of, n- not to pick on Chip Theory. I think it is cool they're doing this. 
they uh, in their redo of like the Cloudspire rules and they're doing like some new graphic design stuff for like the boards and things. They admitted there were too many keywords and that some were redundant and that some could be combined. So, you know, I, I don't know exactly how you spot it, but I think one way is if you're writing the rule book and you're having a hard time explaining your game, you probably haven't done enough yet to compartmentalize and categorize things to simplify them for the learner and the player. Well, I mean, chip theory is a very good example of this for me. Because yes, for you, they're not that bad. But for me, and I think for a lot of people, there is a lot of stuff. When your quick reference sheet is like a front and back full page, big page and tiny font. And like you have like 57 different things that each character can do differently in each dice. And even in that, it's not perfectly clearly explained and you have to differentiate it in an FAQ. That might be too many special rules for the character, right? We've played plenty of games where characters feel differentiated without needing that. So I, I know it's hard because you develop all these great ideas, right? When you're, when you're designing and it's like, oh, I hate to throw that on the floor. Well, it's not necessarily being thrown on the cutting room floor. What if you have a basic character that has five or six rules that are special and make that character feel unique? And then later on, you can add in five or six more. I think Rune Age, which I just played also on the stream channel, did a good job of this. Their base game had a very limited card pool. But as you're going along, and Marvel Champions is another perfect example, they're introducing keywords as they go along. But at that point, somebody's bought into your game. You have to have an entry level for players. And then here's the other thing, and Magic the Gathering does this really well is they cycle their old stuff out. And I'm not saying you can cycle stuff out of board games as easily, but they make sure that they only have a certain amount of keywords active at any given time, right? You know, maybe you don't have first strike in every different set. Maybe you take that away. So that way they can learn this other new rule that makes the game feel different, but you don't have to know that and what first strike does. Or you've given people enough time to learn what first strike does where now they're not looking it up every time. And now adding one or two new keywords isn't as much of a burden for the players. I think something else that's a common error in development, I think, especially for co-op games, and Adventure Tactics has this a lot, so that kind of put it on my mind, and Too Many Bones does this as well, is just to be careful when you get carried away with the narrative element and forget that you need clear mechanics. Like <laughs> Adventure Tactics, I-, I assume you and Jason talked about this, how like the enemies are mislabeled in some scenarios. Yes. It's like they got really excited to call them this in this scenario, but oh, they're not that anymore. Now they're goblin marauders in that scenario. It doesn't matter. Like you can have all the flavor text you want, but make the <laughs> component have the right name, you know? And and Too Many Bones is the same thing. Like they're really excited to kind of give you the thematic justification behind mechanics, which is cool. I like that. Don't get me wrong. But then like at the end, just be like, here is what you do. Here is how it works. Here is the rule, you know? And sometimes they forget that. So I think... In a lot of co-op games and a lot of like these big sprawling fantasy games, games with campaigns and stuff, it's not just that they're trying to have a lot of elements and like a lot of variety, but also that they're trying to bring the narrative to life and they sometimes forget to really carefully suss out exactly how to explain it mechanically and then play test that, make sure it's clear for everybody, work on it. I think that sometimes falls by the wayside, especially with like these giant Kickstarters and smaller teams like I think it's tough for them to just get all the development work done in those. Well, and here's, I think, a final point from me. You get better as you do it more. And this is, as a designer, the more years you've been doing it, it is as a designer of a specific game. 
right? So as you get later into your campaign, your missions will probably get better and better if you're doing one of these big campaign style games. The original stuff you designed is not going to be as good because you weren't as good at designing for the system. Don't forget to go back and fix that earlier stuff with the knowledge you have at the end of the game. And this is so important specifically because the missions people are going to remember the most are the first couple of missions they play and the last couple of missions they play. The middle of the campaign can even fall down a little bit. Trust me, you want to develop everything out. But if you're going to fall down somewhere, the middle is the best place to do that. You need the beginning to be a clean, smooth experience as they're learning the system. Because if they play one game and it's awful, they're never going to play it again. So the mission you should have playtested the most is that first mission. And again, not just at the beginning as you're learning to design within this framework, but really go back at the end and make sure it's everything you wanted that mission to be. And I think that's where Adventure Tactics fell down. They got really good as the campaign went on, but they never went back and fixed those first couple of missions. And they're just not the same quality as the rest. And so I think a lot of people are going to play those first two missions, get frustrated and put it down and miss the best part of the game. Yeah, and my advice, and this is not specifically development, but just kind of playtesting and development in general, is take advantage of the resources that so many gamers are willing to generously devote. But, and this is a big one, get the game good and build a high level of confidence in the game before you put it out for wide playtesting. Because you're going to waste that valuable info on early playtests when you're switching things every five days. And this happened with us before. You're going to burn out to people who were initially excited to play for you. And you're not going to get really useful facts because you're going to iterate the game 10 more times before you actually like start getting to a place where you really love it. And then the playtesting won't be worth anything. So keep it in your little insular group. Keep it in like the five people you trust to play it until you've gotten into a pretty solid place and then dip your toes into playtesting. So basically what I'm saying is front load a lot of development. Get the game better than you think it needs to be. And this is just my advice. Somebody else might say the exact opposite thing. But in my experience, get the game like really solid in your mind and then get it for playtesting out. Like really, you should be playtesting for balance in when it gets wide. Like I think early playtesting should be a smaller group of people. I don't know. That's just my personal thought. I mean, you should know the game is good, right? Like you shouldn't be asking questions like, did you have fun? And I mean, yes, you're going to have to ask that to some degree. But like you should already know the game's pretty good by the time it gets to wider playtesting, I think is what you're referring to. Yes. When... (laughs) I see some wacky games on Kickstarter that I'm like, what are you doing? And I guess they never even showed it to anybody except like their closest friends. Right. <laughs> you, you do need to ask that question. Is it fun? Like early in the process with some people you're not entirely comfortable with or people who are going to be harsh critics, but that's not like your full play testing. That's an early, you know, like dipstick test of the general design. Like, is it functioning as intended? Then you develop it some more and then you put it in front of a lot of people. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I I think we do that. And I think we made design and develop a lot more than most before they show it to people. Heck, I hear about people who pitch games to publishers that are still early in development stage. And I'm like, holy cow. And, and, you know, publishers signing games that aren't fully developed, you know, where you and I really, I think, want to get the game really good before we show it off. And that way, you know, we don't have to do work on it, you know, obviously whatever the publisher wants, but we don't have to work too much on it. And so, I mean, I guess that's going to be, you know, mileage may vary to some degree, but look, as a designer, 
you can't always count on the publisher to do all your playtesting and development for you. I will say there are very, very different levels of development that come out of different publishers. And even within the same publisher, I've heard stories of varying levels of commitment and development. So as a designer, I really do think it is our job to make sure all of that stuff is good and the development is good and that it is where you want it to be. Don't count on the publisher for that. All right. Well, there you go. A bit of thoughts on Dice Throne Adventures and uh, some thoughts on development, some further thoughts. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you in a couple more weeks with something. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another top five list. Oh, you sounded ready with that yawn. I'm good. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) Life is like a box of chocolates. (laughs) But yeah, the stole on the table or your microphone or something, because I keep getting it keeps breaking up in my ear. Oh. Um, Are you bumping something or is it, it's like crackling? I didn't think I was, but well, what, sorry. How much should I, I repeat? Mean, um, yeah, it's still one of my favorites though. Yeah. So the solo mode is very smooth playing. Like it's very simple. Basically after each action you take, you just flip up a card and, and the AI will pretty much, <laughs> I, I don't know. The, the battery is coming. I can tell Jerry the battery is coming. It's supposed to deliver next week. Uh, Uh, sorry (laughs) um but yeah so you just flip the card but yeah you just just flip (laughs) but yeah the solo mode play shut the up (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing it doing it live hey Mike yeah I think I want to develop our friendship oh thanks buddy I need to get rid of some friction points (laughs) 